Our text this morning is Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. Luke 11, 29 to 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be assigned to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord, and he add his blessing to it for our good and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we come to you, this morning to hear from you in your word. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to hear your word. We pray that you'd help us to hear Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, the Logos from the Father. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to hear Jesus and to respond to Jesus in faith and repentance. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see who Jesus is and to hear of what Jesus has done. And Lord, to respond to him and to come to him and to worship him and to submit to him. Lord, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, these words would not fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. But Lord, that you would unstop ears and that you would soften hearts so that these words may come with redeeming power, that there might be life where once there was death, where there once might be be hotness for Jesus, where once there was coldness and lukewarmness. And Lord, we pray that, that you would help us all all of us, Lord, to grow in the understanding of who you are and, Lord, for our lives to be changed through who you are. For your glory and for the advance of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most people in this church family know that For many years, I pursued a life of immorality and drug abuse. And I have to admit that during much of that time, I was enjoying myself. As long as I had drugs and as long as I had a girlfriend, I considered myself happy. Sin does give pleasure, but it is only fleeting pleasure. It doesn't last. 
In my early 20s, the temporal consequences for my sin began to catch up with me. I got into debt with some heavy characters. I was in trouble with the law. I couldn't keep a job or a girlfriend. I went through six jobs and almost as many girlfriends in the period prior to my coming to faith, just in that last year. And I began to become increasingly paranoid. I began to think that, that new people that I met were, were undercover police. I even became convinced that the police had a satellite tracking me. Quite an expense for a two-bit marijuana dealer. David Paulson was right when he said that paranoid schizophrenia is a combination of fear and pride. It's fear because you are afraid of everyone and pride because you think everyone thinks about you. But gradually I began to see that the common denominator in my problems was me. Now, during my, my years of pursuing a sinful lifestyle, I'd somehow convinced myself that I was a good guy. But I began to realize that there was not one person in my life that I hadn't harmed or mistreated in my selfishness. But my real problems started, or rather, my real problems were revealed when a friend told me that I should talk to God about it. Now, I'd prayed before, but most of my prayers had been prayers of, of trying to get out of trouble. But now I realized that I was really in trouble. Because now I knew that I was a sinner and that I deserved hell. Now, I'd seriously considered taking my own life by jumping from my 20th floor balcony. But all that would have done was bring me into the presence of the God of whom I was now terrified. I decided that I needed to get off drugs, so I made an appointment to go to a six-month residential treatment program, but now we're outside of town. By this point, I had become so paranoid that, I, that as I... I watch TV, I, I thought that there were secret messages or signs as I saw them and of, of all telling me what an evil person I was. Likewise, newspaper articles and the headlines, there were messages, I felt secret messages or signs for me and songs on the radio I felt were about me. Like the Carly Simon song, You're So Vain, I Bet You Think This Song Is About You. I really did. But when I went out to the drug treatment center, they, they told me that they couldn't help me, that I needed a psychiatric evaluation because I was too far gone. I couldn't even put together a sentence. And so we turned around and went back to the city and went to a psychiatric hospital where they checked me in to the crisis unit, and it was a locked ward. I remember very clearly going to bed that night having the room to myself, but waking up the next morning, I really wasn't sleeping very very much at this time. I, I woke up the next morning and, and saw a, a tall, thin man with, with long hair and a beard um, and a sheet wrapped around him standing looking out the window. And I thought, it's Jesus. As it turned out, he thought he was Jesus too. 
We had some very interesting conversations. But the so-called signs that I were, were, was, were experiencing were, were overwhelming. And that time, the, the Toronto Blue Jays were in the American pennant race playing against Oakland. And Roberto Alomar, one of my favorite players, hit into a double play as I walked into the TV room, and I thought it was my fault because I'd walked into the room. Again, pride that I could even influence the outcome of, of a baseball game by my presence. And then I remember so clearly at another time walking out of my, hall, out of the, out of my room into the hallway telling myself, these aren't signs. It's all in my head. Only to hear the song, Signs, by the five-man electrical band playing on someone's radio. The chorus says, signs, signs, everywhere signs, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? I thought it was a sign. But I wanted to run screaming out of the building. But the very next day, on Sunday morning, I was watching television in the lounge. And that morning, the TV did have a sign for me. It did have a message for me. There was a preacher on TV talking about forgiveness, and he said anyone could be forgiven if they turned from their sin and turned to Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't a sign as I understood it, but it was a sign. And at that moment, by God's grace, I repented of my sin and put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And in that moment, I knew the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. Now that's all I was seeking. I was just looking for forgiveness, but, but God also took away my desire for drugs. That's 28 years ago, and, and I have, have no desire to touch drugs anymore. And that's not all. He also healed my mind. The paranoia was gone. I was sitting there suddenly in my right mind after even thinking my family had hired a hitman to have me killed. After meeting with a doctor, I was released from the hospital. And my, my mom picked me up and brought me to their house. And then I went out in the backyard and and was just thinking about, about what had happened. Thinking about God's grace. And, and I began literally rolling in the grass with joy. And I often say I probably look crazier in that moment than I did before. It reminds me of the scene from Pilgrim's Progress when, when Christian, who's carrying a, a huge burden on his back, gets to the foot of the cross, and the burden, his sin and guilt, rolls off his back into the tomb, never to be seen again. I experienced that. And if you were in Christ, you have experienced that as well. Now, some of you may be surprised at my testimony. And nobody here knew me prior to my conversion, but I think most of you would agree that God has changed me dramatically from the person I just described. And apart from the rolling in the grass bit, I think you'd probably say I was sane too. Friends, you've been given many signs. You have been given the word of God. 
You have been given the sign of the resurrection. You have been given the sign of others around you, even in your own family that have been born again and are now living different lives because of Jesus Christ. You are seeing the sign of others in the church family who are living different lives because of Jesus Christ. And all of these signs point to your need for salvation and that point to Jesus Christ as the only Savior. How will you respond to Jesus Christ? In our passage this morning, we see another group of people who had seen many signs but still had not believed. In the previous passage, Jesus has responded to those who slandered him and blasphemed the Holy Spirit by saying that he had cast out demons by, by, the, by the power of Beelzebul, verse 15. And the second group, remember, was testing him in verse 16 by continually seeking a sign from heaven. But prior to addressing this second group, which he does in our passage this morning, Jesus addressed the first group, showing the foolishness of their charge by explaining that Satan does not fight against Satan and against his own kingdom, but against God and God's kingdom. Nonetheless, Jesus taught that he will indeed plunder Satan and rescue the elect who are in bondage to him. Jesus then explains that efforts of self-reform will never work, for the demons will always return to their own domain. What is needed for salvation is to turn from sin and turn to God and be saved and so be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as Jesus was teaching these things, a woman yelled out from the crowd. She said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Evidently, she was responding positively to Jesus, declaring how blessed his mother was for having carried him in her womb and nursed him at her breast. But Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, Jesus is not rebuking that woman, he, and he's not saying that Mary wasn't blessed. That was, he's not saying that Mary was not blessed with that very special privilege. What he's saying is that those who hear the word of God and keep it are even more blessed. As I said last week, those who have Jesus dwelling in their hearts are even more blessed than Mary who had him dwelling in her womb. So then he ended that section with a challenge. A challenge to hear and to obey God's word. And it's a challenge that the vast majority of the the generation to whom Jesus ministered would reject. So again, it is to those who sought signs from Jesus that he now turns to address. This passage is essentially divided into two main sections. Verses 29 and 30. This generation. And then in verses 31 and 32 the judging Gentiles. So then this morning we'll see that the evil generation has rejected the sign given to them. But outsiders who have accepted the sign will actually rise up in judgment against the evil generation. So then, the evil generation, verses 29 and 30. Now Luke tells us that the crowds were increasing. Wherever Jesus went, he, he drew a crowd. 
You'd have to have been hiding under a rock in Israel not to have heard what Jesus had been doing. The crowds heard and the crowds came. However, coming to Jesus to see and listen to Jesus is not, as I said a moment ago, the same as as believing in him and obeying him. Most people came out of mere curiosity, just coming to see this miracle worker for themselves. Not to obey him or let alone to worship him. So Jesus said to the crowds, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Having just called people to respond, Jesus Jesus now rebukes those who are still seeking a sign. Once again, Luke, the master storyteller, is showing his divinely inspired skill. He's drawing us back to what we heard in verse 16. Again, after casting out the demon from the mute man, some of the crowd were looking for a sign to prove that he was sent by God. And this even even after they'd just seen such a powerful sign. Well, the first group had slandered Jesus, saying he was casting out demons by Satan, and so was in league with the devil. And since Jesus had actually cast out demons in the power of the Holy Spirit, this was actually blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So the second group, these looking for a sign, were actually committing the same sin as the first group. They were saying that the sign of casting out the demon was not evidence, not enough evidence, that Jesus had come on a heavenly mission. They were saying that they did not believe that Jesus was from God. Now just think for a moment about the signs that Jesus, some of the signs that Jesus performed during his incarnation. He cast out demons as had just happened in verse 14. He given sight to the blind. He healed lepers. He even raised the dead. And many of them had seen for themselves, but they'd all heard what Jesus had done and they had rejected him. So these people were trying to test Jesus. It's the height of audacity to seek to test Jesus. It's even diabolical. The devil had tried to test Jesus as well. And so no, Jesus is not being harsh when he calls these people an evil generation for seeking a sign. Now we have to recognize that signs do point to Jesus. They they do point to who Jesus is and what he came to do. John says towards the end of his gospel account in John 20, 30, and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'll often, in the context of evangelism, I'll often point people to the gospel according to John. But these people here in, in Luke eleven sixteen, 16, that Jesus is addressing here, they had seen signs. They had seen signs, but they were not satisfied. And so the issue here is, is saying, I will not believe until I see a sign. And then their guilt is compounded when they do see a sign and still say that it's not enough. They still demand even more signs. These people have been given more than enough of a sign. 
The sign was right there before them, and they still didn't believe. The one who had proclaimed a blessing on Jesus' mother, she had recognized the sign, the sign rather, and believed. But these people saw the sign and rejected. Friends, signs, even such amazing signs as these people saw are not enough to change a hardened heart. I've had many people say to me that they will believe in God if he shows them a sign. If they see a miracle with their own eyes, they will believe. No, they won't. There is plenty of evidence as to who God is. Romans 1, 18 and following explains that it is from the hardness of heart that people reject him. Creation bears witness to who God is. They know that there is a God, but they deny him. His divine power and divine divine nature have been clearly perceived in creation. They, They knew God, but did not honor him as God. There are no atheists. Only anti-theists, they are against God. And after Je- think about it, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, after Lazarus had been dead for four days, what did the Pharisees do? They didn't say, wow, maybe we were wrong about Jesus. Maybe we should really listen to him. No, quite the opposite. They made plans to kill Jesus. Luke 11.53, even raising someone from the dead after four days was not enough of a sign to make unbelievers believers. They also made plans to kill Lazarus too because others were believing on his account. John 12.10-11. Signs on their own are not enough to save, but signs will be used as evidence against you on the day of judgment unless you repent and believe. So in this passage, Jesus gives a strong warning to those who are seeking a sign. Again, he says it is an evil generation who seeks after a sign. It is a mark of an evil generation that says we will not believe unless we have seen a sign. So Jesus was addressing here the flagrant unbelief in the generation to whom he ministered during his incarnation. As we'll see, that's not all he's doing. Jesus continues, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So then what is the sign of Jonah? Well, Joshua read Jonah 1, 17 to 3, five of us earlier during the call to worship. You, you know the story. The prophet Jonah had been commanded by God to go to Nineveh. He was to go to God to pronounce judgment on them unless they repented. But you know what happened. Jonah fled in the opposite direction and jumped on a ship headed to Tarshish. But God sent a powerful storm that threatened to destroy the ship. And Jonah knew that the storm was his fault, so he told the sailors to cast him into the sea. And so reluctantly, the crew threw him overboard into the sea, and the Lord sent a great fish that he had appointed to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. But Jonah prayed to the Lord, and the Lord commanded the fish to spit Jonah out on dry ground. And so only now Jonah went to Nineveh and obediently preached judgment on the city, calling for repentance. 
And the people did so, and God spared the city. So again, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, in the parallel passage in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, Jesus says very similarly that it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then in verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So then Matthew records Jesus linking the the sign of Jonah with Jonah's resurrection, so to speak, from the belly of the fish, with Jesus' resurrection from the grave. So then part of the sign of Jonah is resurrection. But here in Luke 11, verse 30, Jesus says that Jonah became a sign for the people of Nineveh. So, sorry, as Jonah became a sign for the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. And then in verse 32, that the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. So then Luke records linking, Jesus linking the sign with, with Jonah's message and response to it with the message of Jesus and the response to it. So which is it? From the context, I believe it's actually both. Matthew's focus is on the resurrection. And Luke's focus is on repentance to the message that Jesus taught. And so taken together, both point to the fact that Jesus himself is the sign. Jesus is a sign. He says that quite clearly. So the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. Jesus is the sign, and the resurrection of Jesus is part of the sign, as was the resurrection of Jonah. And repentance and faith at the message of Jonah, and repentance and faith at the message of Jesus is the sign. Jesus is the sign. So in, in this, you see that... that you, don't, you can't contradict Scripture. You have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And they're, they're both teaching the same thing, but from a different perspective, with a different emphasis. Again, Jesus is the sign. But as amazing as the sign of Jonah was, it was nothing compared to the prophet greater than Moses. As powerful as Jonah's words might have been, they were nothing compared to those of the word of God incarnate. Jonah hated those to whom he ministered and wanted them to die. But Jesus loved those to whom he ministered and would be killed by those to whom he ministered. the Ninevites had faith enough to believe the rebellious prophet who hated them. Will this generation have faith enough to believe the greater prophet who loved them? As Leon Morris explains, in the event at Nineveh, the prophet and his preaching led to repentance, but neither Jesus' resurrection nor his preaching would bring about repentance in the people of his day. Jesus will declare in Luke 16.31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will will they be convinced as someone should rise from the dead. 
What is your response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe it by faith? What is your response to the preaching of Jesus Christ? Do you submit to it and to him as your Lord? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is not saying, just saying the words, Jesus is Lord, but actually submitting to him as Lord by surrendering your life to him in repentance and faith. Similarly, this is not just some superstitious belief in the resurrection, but actually believing it. That he was delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification, Romans 4.25. Friends, coming to faith does not mean accepting a theory. It's not believing a doctrine. It's not following a religion. It's trusting a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's believing the sign that he is. In the same way, if you will not believe, you are just rejecting a theory or a doctrine or religion. You are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, you are rejecting the free offer of salvation through him. And you are damning yourself to eternal separation from him in hell. So now then, let's consider the judging Gentiles, verses 31 and 32. Jesus now turns to another incident from the history of Israel to teach the crowd. He refers to the queen of the south coming to see Solomon. He's referring here to the queen of Sheba. This incident is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. King, Solomon, King Solomon's fame had reached all the way to Sheba at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula in modern Yemen. And so she, a heathen queen, traveled all the way to see Solomon for herself. When she witnessed his wisdom and his wealth, she was breathless and testified that the reality was even greater than the reports that she had heard. And she praised the Lord for setting Solomon on the throne to execute justice and righteousness. Solomon's wisdom was, was certainly something to behold, and so were his riches. Yet Solomon, as we know, was a very flawed king. He, he might have possessed much wealth, but he also possessed many wives and concubines. And these, many of these women led him to the worship of false gods, even to the point of sacrificing his own children to them. If it wasn't for the book of Ecclesiastes written later in his life, even Solomon's own salvation will be called into question. The King Solomon, as great as he might have been, was nothing compared to the King of Kings. Even without consideration of those specific sins, his wisdom was infinitesimal compared to that of Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God made flesh. All the glory of Solomon was insignificant compared to the glory of Jesus Christ, even as Christ's glory was veiled during the time of his, of his incarnation. The heathen queen of Sheba traveled over 1,500 kilometers through the desert 
to hear the wisdom of Solomon and praised the Lord God for it. Evidently, the Queen of Sheba was saved. Her her praise of the Lord God was not just a one-time event. So it seems that when she heard Solomon's wisdom, she became a worshiper of the one true God. But these Jews had the words of Jesus spoken into their ears in their own backyards. But still, they rejected him. Something greater, far, far greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is proclaiming that he is greater than one of the most important and regal kings in Israel's history. But notice it's not just that someone is greater than Solomon, but that something is greater than Solomon. Jesus is not just just declaring that he personally is greater than Solomon, but that, that everything that he came to do is greater than Solomon. His coming and his kingdom are greater. Everything he came to do will far exceed anything that was done by Solomon. And the queen of Sheba responded to King Solomon. This generation ought to respond to King Jesus. The queen of Sheba came to test Solomon and discovered that he was indeed God's king. The men of Israel of that generation tested Jesus and rejected him as the king of kings. So Jesus declares that this queen of Sheba, a formerly pagan queen, a Gentile, very much an outsider, will actually rise up at the judgment of the men of of that generation and condemn them. The weight of what Jesus was saying here would not have been lost on his hearers. It would have been outrageous to them that this Gentile woman would sit in judgment of Jewish men. The Apostle Paul will say something very similar in Romans 2.27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Gentiles judging Jews. The people knew what Jesus meant. That whether any of them repented of his words will have to wait until the day of judgment to see. And finally, in verse 32, Jesus returns to the first event from the history of Israel that he'd spoken of earlier, that that of Jonah and the Ninevites. At the preaching of Jonah, the Ninevites believed God and called for a fast, Jonah 3, 5, and 6. Even the king of Nineveh rose from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. A visible sign of repentance. He called the nation to prayer and fasting, Jonah 3, 7, and 8. As Solomon was very much a flawed king, so Jonah was very much a flawed prophet. Not only did he run the opposite direction of of God's call because he hated the Ninevites and didn't want to see them delivered, not only did God have to send a, a mighty storm and a great fish to turn Jonah in the right direction, but even after Jonah had delivered the message, even after the people had repented, he was so angry that God had delivered the Ninevites that he wanted to die. This man had a very hard heart. Even as he had been the object of God's grace, as he had fled, but God had mercy on him, now he's refusing to have mercy on the Ninevites who he hated. 
And so the book of Jonah ends on a cliffhanger. The, the people of Nineveh were clearly de- delivered, but we don't know if Jonah repented. Like Solomon, the end of the story doesn't say whether, whether Jonah was, was truly with God. And I have to say that I believe that God's mercy that delivered Jonah from the storm and through the fish was, was still upon Jonah, but, but the ending here is, is deliberately ambiguous. Something far, far greater than Jonah is here. Again, it's not just someone greater, but something greater. Jonah preached and more than 120,000 people were saved. Jesus preached and very few from that generation were saved during the time of his ministry. Only the 12 apostles and, and a relatively small number of disciples were saved. However, the ministry of Jesus Christ continues to this day through those first apostles and disciples. And through the, the word of God that the apostles penned, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands have and will come to faith through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Even the Old Testament believers, including these Ninevites, had actually come to faith through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, though not as clearly as we now understand. And the ministry of Jesus Christ is not limited to Proclamation. Jesus lived and died to save his people. Jonah was sent into the depths of a fish and the depths of the sea because of his sin. But Jonah was delivered after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Jesus Christ was sent to the cross and the depths for our sin. And he was delivered after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But all that that Jesus Christ entails is infinitely beyond who he saved. Jesus Christ came to usher in the kingdom of God and he will return to fulfill it. Jesus Christ is far, far greater than Jonah. And so again, the implication is that if, if the people of Nineveh believed at the proclamation of Jonah, how much more should the people of this generation believe at the proclamation of Jesus Christ? Jesus declared that the generation to whom he ministered was an evil generation because they refused to believe unless they saw a sign. And then when they saw the sign, they rejected it. When they saw Jesus, they rejected him. The, the queen of Sheba and the, and the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn the people of that generation. But it wasn't just that generation that will be judged. Pete Townsend of The Who famously sang about his generation. People try to put us down talking about my generation just because we get around talking about my generation. Things they do look awful cold talking about my generation. I hope I die before I get old talking about my generation. I used to loudly sing along with that song. I fully expected to die by the time I was 30. I'm very thankful that my desires weren't fulfilled, though I tried very, very hard to make them come to pass. It didn't come true for Pete Townsend either. He's now 75. He didn't die before he got old. 
But Jesus Christ wasn't just talking about that generation. He's talking about my generation and your generation. The generation to whom Jesus ministered saw the sign of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as much as a privilege as that was, you have a far greater one. You have seen far greater signs. You have more than they did. You now live after the crucifixion. You now live after the resurrection. You now understand this in a, in a way that, that even those to whom Jesus ministered didn't understand yet. You have the whole canon, the closed canon of the scriptures, the whole counsel of the word of God. You have countless witnesses within the Bible. You have the witnesses, including those in your family. You have the witnesses, including those in the church. And these are all signs that are, again, meant to point you to your need for a Savior. And to point to the fact that Jesus Christ is that Savior. Brothers and sisters, but for the grace of God, you and I would not have believed. Faith is a gift. If you are here this morning as a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, as one who hears the Word of God and does it, that, brother and sister, is a miracle. That, that is a miracle of, of regeneration. Even greater than Jesus raising someone from the dead. Because through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, you have been raised from spiritual death. Now, you didn't figure the gospel out. It, 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 you didn't just will yourself to believe. Faith is a gift. There is no room for pride. You have nothing that was not given to you. Thank God for it. But to any unbelievers who are hearing me now, again, if you are rejecting Jesus Christ, you are not just rejecting a theory or a doctrine or a religion. You are rejecting a person, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are rejecting Jesus Christ. You're rejecting the kingdom of heaven and you're choosing instead the realm of darkness. You are choosing hell. the Queen of Sheba, and the Ninevites, these Gentiles, formerly pagan outsiders, will rise up at the judgment of that generation and condemn it. But they will also rise up and condemn your generation. And unless you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, trusting Him for your salvation, they will rise up and condemn you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. The eternal, infinite, holy Son of God. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that out of perfect love for your heavenly Father and perfect love for your church, 
you came and lived an obedient life and died a sinner's death, the death that we deserve to die, that though we had a hundred thousand lifetimes to live, we could never pay the debt that we owe because our sin is against you, the infinite God. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, and for all your ministry that you performed and that you continue to perform as you intercede for your people before the throne of God. And we praise you that because of the work of your Holy Spirit, we have believed in you and placed our hope in you. And also through the power of your Holy Spirit, we're continuing to walk in repentance and faith, not as though we could ever do anything to earn our salvation, but because we've received the free gift of salvation through you. Lord, I pray that you would help each one who is hearing, Lord, to, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to repent and believe and to trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would move with conviction for sin. I pray that, that you would till the soil of hearts through the power of your Spirit, and I pray that you would bring life where once there was death, for only you can save. Do this, I pray, for the glory of your name and for the advance of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen.